morning, everybody. Welcome to Rising. We've got a great show planned for you, as always. Kim Iverson is back with us, bright and early from California. <laughs> How are you feeling, Kim? I'm feeling okay. I still I still have COVID. Luckily, I can work remotely as I always do. So you know, no one no one around me is going to be infected. But um, yeah, I've, I've been down with COVID for the last for the last week. I got it last Wednesday. My fiance's had it. He's like five days ahead of me on this whole thing. So, um, but yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good now. I had like one bad day. I will say where I was in bed and high fever, and then after that, I was feeling okay with COVID. But I lost my sense of taste and smell today. This morning, oh, no. I woke up. I cannot taste my coffee, so <laughs> so uh, oh, that's no. kind of a bummer. Well, but, we are uh, very yeah. glad you're doing better and glad that you're with us. So yeah. we want to uh, get into the news today. We've got some rather serious stories. Uh, so yesterday, the country saw actually two, over the weekend, two tragic shootings. The first was a mass shooting at a grocery store, and that was on Saturday in Buffalo, New York, that left 10 people dead. The suspect allegedly wrote a manifesto about his plans to specifically attack black people and cited the Great Replacement Theory. However, a senior law enforcement official told NBC that they were working to verify the document's authenticity. Now, the Great Replacement Theory is a kind of like conspiracy theory idea that non-white individuals are going to replace white people to vote in a specific political agenda or destroy white values in Western civilization through inter interracial marriage, immigration, and violence. Now, among the 13 victims who were shot, 11 were black and then two were white. Yeah, the suspect, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron, allegedly researched what time of the day Topps grocery store would be busiest and then targeted the store over its mostly black demographic. Like so many tragedies before this, this isn't the first time the suspect has been involved in violent attacks. The shooting at Tops comes a year after Gendron made threats against his own high school and a group of people gathered around Tops Market Sunday afternoon to mourn the victims. Just really, really, really tragic. Yeah. And even more tragic that there were signs that this guy was a crazed mass shooter in the making threatening his school and yet uh they really couldn't st I, I you know i don't i don't obviously you can't hold people until they commit crimes you can't just hold them because you think they're going to commit crimes so you know it's a it's a really tricky situation what could they have done i certainly made sure he didn't get any guns yeah, Somehow. It, it is a tricky situation, but it, I got to tell you, it is frustrating when we learn, yeah, we learned this about this alleged shooter that he had threatened to school, uh, the Parkland shooter. Like this, it was obvious that he was a mass uh, a shooter in the making, that he had threatened family members, he'd threatened the school, he had been referred to law enforcement, the FBI was on to him. They didn't do anything. And now maybe they're going to say, right, we, we have civil liberties. You and I think civil liberties are, are extremely important. The, the FBI, the, the police can't just you know, arrest people or hold people indefinitely without reason. So I do get that. But I guess my frustration is they're always saying, you know, this is why we need more. We need more resources and we need people to be really vigilant and to speak up and to, you know, see something, say something. It's like, OK, but people always do see something. They always do say something. And you you still are not able to prevent this stuff. So maybe we just have to be so I, I'm unwilling to give up additional liberties or to or to pay more money to law enforcement, or do any of that when time after time they fail. Like, I don't believe that they're going to be able to stop these things. And maybe we just need to be honest about that. Well, I think they need to first research more how he got the guns. I, I've heard early reports that he got them from his parents, but I'm not one, I, that's not verified. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we have really any solid evidence yet as to, yeah. you know, what, what, how he got the weapons. 
Uh, yeah, but parents, that would be the don't first. give your antisocial crazed teenager a gun, please. That's like, well, stop doing yeah. that. Especially if they threaten the school and there was actually yeah. action on that threat. You know, they actually picked him up and took him to a mental, you know, for mental evaluation uh, because of that threat. So, I mean, if there, if there is a threat to that level of seriousness, especially, I think it's definitely, you know, uh, I mean, how did he get the weapons? That's That's got to be, I think, the number one question. And in this case, the, the parents might end up being held liable for this shooting. Yeah, and that is tricky as well. But I, I, I think probably there ought to be some kind of liability on the part of the parents for if you bring weapons into a home with a clearly unstable individual. Um, yeah. You know, that's because the signs were there. People saw the signs. People spoke up. That's what frustrates me. But we're always told, you know, be vigilant. You know, watch, see if, if there's a bag left unattended, report it. Do all those things. You know, be a good citizen. People are good citizens. They do do those things. But it falls through, it falls through the cracks when it comes to law enforcement, which really, yeah. really frustrates me. Well, so President Biden commented on the tragedy yesterday. Let's watch that. We're still gathering the facts. Well, already... The Justice Department has stated publicly that it is investigating the matter as a hate crime, racially motivated act of white supremacy and violent extremism. As they do, we must all work together to address the hate that remains a stain on the soul of America. The hearts are heavy once again, but a resolve must never, ever waver. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called for social media platforms to address and track down extremists on their platform after it came to light that Gendron allegedly mounted a camera to his helmet and live streamed the shooting on Twitch. Now, Twitch said it mm. took down the footage within the first two minutes, uh, which is actually yeah. pretty impressive, I think, of being able to identify that there was something they don't want to be showing and taking it down. So in, yeah. in this case, I, I think it's a lot of deflection to blame social media or whatever, right? There's no, there, there's evidence that he, I, he was radical. He said he was radicalized, if you can take his manifesto seriously, you know, just from searching online about the great replacement or whatever. But it's not, I don't think Twitch did anything uniquely irresponsibly. In, in fact, I mean, and this is kind of weird, but this was a thought I had. You know, if there's an actual a mass shooter and they're live streaming the attack, there, there is a scenario in which both law enforcement or, you know, victims or people who are hiding would rather have access to that live stream than not have it so they could, you know, avoid the shooter. But then I mean, it's probably a niche case. But anyway, I, I mean, that's I think that's actually a really good point. I would prefer to know where he's located. Right. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, in his manifesto, alleged manifesto, we don't know if he was actually the author of it, but he says 4chan, you know, he was radicalized on 4chan. Um, he did upload this manifesto onto Google Drive so as a Google document. So I don't know if, you know, is Nancy Pelosi now suggesting that Google sweep through our Google Docs right. and check to see if there's any sort of extremism that might be, you know, because he uploaded this allegedly two days prior to the shooting on Thursday. So, you know, but it does, this does kind of take us down that path again of, okay, who's an, ex how do you identify an extremist in advance? And then when you do identify them, another question is, what do you do about it? You cannot, once again, put people in prison until they actually commit crimes. We're not minority right. report. You can't just say, well, we think you're going to commit a crime. So therefore, you know, we're going to lock you away. You're guilty. I mean, what do we do? Right. 
And, and even right, the great replacement stuff—that's a—it's a political viewpoint. It's an—it's a—it's a view about something that's happening in the world. I don't agree with it. I and I, and then obviously, right. and whether you agree with it or not, then you know, taking it and committing violence because of it is absolutely wrong. And and I don't agree with the theory itself either. But it is a political viewpoint. I mean, I would—I was actually. <laughs> reflecting on how so texas has this new social media law that was uh that was defended successfully in court last week to prevent this this is a republican law to prevent uh you know political viewpoint-based discrimination or censorship on the platform and one of the reasons i think that gets difficult and confusing is well what counts as a political viewpoint i mean this guy's views are political viewpoints they're crazy political viewpoints but are you, I, I think probably under the social media law, it would have been uh, the platforms can't even take down something like that. Yeah. Well, did you see Rolling Stone's tweet? I think we have this one. Speaking of political viewpoints, they were claiming that the shooter is a mainstream Republican. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right? Be- this is the that's the the viewpoint that he's a mainstream. Is, yeah. yeah. The Buffalo shooter isn't a lone wolf. He's a mainstream Republican. Is the uh, um, is the congressional baseball game shooter a mainstream Democrat then? I mean, like we can just play this game forever, right? It's, it's, well, not only that, but I mean, uh, he he's not this this shooter wasn't Republican at all. Mm-hmm. Reading his manifesto, uh, yeah. I mean, he. I don't know. You know, he's 18. He's young. He doesn't. I don't know if he knows any much about anything politically, considering his manifesto was all over the place. But sir, you know, he says that he was a communist from for the last several years. You know, since he was 12 and got politically active, that he was like an anarcho-communist, and then has moved now to a green national, like a nationalist, fascist, mm-hmm. socialist, green, eco, eco-fascist. I mean, just weird weird political ideology, but certainly not coming from, you know, he condemns conservatism, says that that's equal to corporatism. He doesn't doesn't want anything to do with it. He also condemned leftism. He's like all over the place, but certainly not under any stretch of any imagination, a mainstream Republican. Um, but, you know, that's, I guess, where some of these outlets want to... And that's something I've noticed from doing research on sort of like alt-right type people who became, you know, who become violent is it seemed to me from trying to understand the evolution of their ideas that it, right it's just like you you said it's well what's the they they find something really radical and then they get sick of that because then it doesn't become exciting enough and they have to find something else that's radical like the, right. there, there's a certain right. subset of you know alienated confused psychotic young people usually young men who you know would, would right would be a communist one day a fascist the next they would join ISIS if the opportunity came along like it's just looking for the next crazy thing to try to derive meaning from and because those ideologies are never actually sources of meaning because they're crazy then they're they have to get more radicalized they have to find something else to keep the to almost yeah. like keep the high going i guess yeah i think that's a great point um yeah. but later in the day we did have another shooting happen that broke out here where i am in california it was in orange county in laguna woods when a man opened fire and left one dead and wounded five senior citizens before being stopped the suspect is an asian man in his 60s and was in custody when police arrived detain him and hogtied his legs with an extension cord and confiscated at least two weapons from him. He was detained when the deputies arrived. That group of churchgoers displayed what we believe is exceptional heroism and bravery in intervening to stop the suspect. They undoubtedly prevented additional injuries and fatalities. Yeah, apparently they hogtied the guy. So he goes in there 
and the churchgoers, the senior citizens, actually detained him themselves, hogtied him, and waited for the police to show up. Uh, I mean, just incredible. Good for them. This was, Amazing. I, yeah, it was a predominantly Taiwanese church. What we know about this man is he's also Asian. Not sure if he's also Taiwanese, if he has any sort of connection to the church at all, um, or if he's a member of their community, or, you know, it's really unclear what right. happened in and that not, situation. Not all violence. In fact, the vast majority of violence is not committed for ideological reasons or political reasons or or race or something else it's you know right people kill their neighbors they kill their coworkers they kill their family members which is absolutely terrible there's way too much violence in this country but the media gets very interested in you know violence that fits a, a certain pattern of, you know, we want to know the manifesto we want to know what their views are and sometimes that's important to do as it's it just, as it is in, in the case of the former sure. shooting but it's just it's not always the case I, and I mean, even if they do have, the, you know, like the, the kid with the manifesto in Buffalo, even if they do have something like that, the bottom line is these people are nuts. He's crazy, clearly yeah. crazy. And so was this man who goes into a church and decides to shoot it up. The, you have to have, no matter yeah. what your, your ideology is, you have to have a level of insanity that goes along with it that then gets you to pull the trigger like this. So, uh, I mean, I think that's another thing that people need to remember and don't get lost on this, thinking that there's this enormous threat coming from, you know, mainstream Republican America, according to Rolling Stone, that, you know, suddenly we have to fear all of these mainstream Republicans because they have the, the ability to pull a trigger and kill us in a mass shooting. That's not accurate. I mean, the, re the reality is these people are nuts. The yeah. people that do this, they're crazy. Absolutely. And it's, you know, and, and that's not an excuse. That's not like, oh, well, we need to find, figure out the mental health crisis in America or, you know, this is just uh, we have to at least recognize it so that we know who we potentially should keep uh, from potentially, you know, committing an act like this. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Well, uh, my radar is up next. So stick around for that. All right, Robbie, what's on your radar? Okay, so last year, Dave Chappelle's comedy special, The Closer, drew the ire of the transgender activist community, and Netflix became the target of protests. Remember this? Ted Sarandos, co-CEO of the streaming giant, initially defended Chappelle's right to create offensive comedy. Then he walked back his comments somewhat in an effort to appease what he described as a group of employees who were definitely feeling pain and hurt. He said, quote, I screwed up that internal communication. I did that. I screwed it up in two ways. First and foremost, I should have led with a lot more humanity. So this left matters somewhat unclear as to whether Netflix would still be inclined to feature artists like Chappelle, whose work involves upsetting some people, or whether subjects that offend the sensibilities of progressive employees would now be off limits. Thankfully, Netflix has just now added an artistic expression policy to its well-publicized company culture memo. This policy states in no uncertain terms that the company will continue to platform provocative creators and ideas, and if employees have a problem with that, well, they should work elsewhere. Here is the policy, quote, 
Not everyone will like or agree with everything on our service. While every title is different, we approach them based on the same set of principles. We support the artistic expression of the creators we choose to work with. We program for a diversity of audiences and tastes. And we let viewers decide what's appropriate for them versus having Netflix censor specific artists or voices. As employees, we support the principle that Netflix offers a diversity of stories, even if we find some titles counter to our own personal values. Depending on your role, you may need to work on titles you perceive to be harmful. And if you'd find it hard to support our content breadth, Netflix may not be the best place for you." End quote. This is a great statement, and it should actually serve as a model for other companies that produce ideological content or are involved in the marketplace of ideas. Many of these firms hire substantial numbers of progressive young people in an attempt to eventually offer content that is relevant to this key demographic. But in recent years, a problem has emerged. Some subset of these millennial and Gen Z employees have adopted an elite college campus mindset, and they expect their bosses to proactively eliminate speech that is emotionally upsetting to them just as they had expected school administrators and professors to do so. Companies thus find themselves in the untenable position, trying to meet the expectations of a small but hostile, militantly progressive workforce, even though these expectations inevitably work against the interests of millions of customers. Among the general public, Dave Chappelle is extremely popular, making clear to employees from the get-go that the company is not going to heed unreasonable employee demands relating to speech and expression, should be considered a best practice moving forward. Setting these expectations up front will deprive hostile employees of their sense of betrayal while reassuring customers that excessive outrage will never dictate content choices. There's a single, voluntarily adoptable corporate policy that could deaccelerate the culture wars. Well, I think it's probably this one. Unsurprisingly, it's a move that attracted a lot of positive attention from people who are concerned about creative freedom on the platform. Elon Musk tweeted the following. So he tweeted this, good move by Netflix. So it's, uh, you know, it's part of this new kind of defiance. You know, we saw this with Jeff Bezos, and we're going to talk about that a little later on the show. But uh, I, what did you make of it, Kim? I was very pleased to see Netflix say, look, this is what we do. We're not going to be overly you know, picky about what the content is. It might trouble some people. If you can't deal with that, that's absolutely fine. Don't work here. That's what it should that's- be. Don't work here. Right. And that's the only thing that they can do. And I am I'm it's nice to see that they're finally, I think, implementing a policy like this and and having to explicitly say this to their employees. It's kind of bizarre that we're at this point in society that that has to be said that, hey, by the way, you might not agree with all of our customers. You know, wow. Shocker. You might (laughs) not agree with everybody. Uh, But, you know, it, it is. And even those who think that they're woke or, you know, whatever they want to label themselves, they don't even agree with each other. I mean, you know, that's one of the issues also that goes on with the left eating the left. You know, we, we see this all the time, the left eating their own. And it's because you're going to find a, a, sort, a point of contention at some point. So you might think one comedy special is fine, but the person sitting next to you might say, no, that's a line for me. And then the person next to them might say, oh, no, but the, the previous one before that was the line for me. You know, and you just keep having to set up these I mean, how do you even how do you even manage around that? How do you even operate a company when everyone's got their own different level of what is acceptable to them and what is considered offensive? So the only thing you can do is say you're not going to agree with everything. Tough luck. That's just the way it is. That's what I hope that, that companies like Netflix are realizing that 
appeasement of you know the small number of sort of hysterically pro-censorship voices is a losing strategy because there's no endpoint. There, there then there will be a right. subset of them that will denounce the previous woke censors as as not censorship. It's a French Revolution. Like they get the guillotine, and then it's on to something else. And right. it, there's no, the the natural endpoint is the entire company being shut down and producing no content because. All content is is unsafe. Is it has some misinformation risk that is too high for a, a certain kind of of progressive young person. So you can't. That, that's an audience of that's an audience of one or fewer people. Ultimately, you just you're cannibalizing yourselves by giving into this degree. I think they might be starting to realize that. I think they might be starting to realize that the vast majority of people who watch Netflix, who want to pay this company money, who want to you know exchange enter into a an arrangement with them with, with they, they pay for uh, for a viewing experience don't care about this and they don't and, and in fact to the extent they care about it they don't want Netflix to give into it. they don't want companies to give into things like this that the audience of the hostile to the given mindset is much 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 bigger maybe it's less influential maybe it doesn't you know command as much uh, currency on social media or in the pages of the New York Times or in elite media but it, it's bigger. It, it's a bigger yeah. customer base. Yeah, and a, a company like Netflix that is supposed to be serving a vast, you know, a wide array of tastes. I mean, I certainly don't watch everything on Netflix. I skip most stuff. I mean, that's kind of what we all do, right? We go onto the platform, we browse around, we skip most everything, and then we watch the things that we want to watch that, that seem to interest us. Um, and for them to have to try to cater to the subset of people, I'm glad that they're realizing that they just cannot do that anymore. More companies hopefully will do that. I know, and a lot of them are starting to see there's no benefit in actually doing it. I think Spotify probably learned that lesson with Joe Rogan when they gained 2 million subscribers during the controversy rather than losing people, more people wanted to have access to that content than not. So, you know, maybe more of these companies, and I know Elon, if he does end up buying Twitter or not, We'll have a similar, I'm sure, outlook with Twitter. Like, hey, listen, maybe you don't like all the tweets that happen on the platform. If you don't like it, if it's offensive to you, then maybe this isn't the best place for you to work. That might just be a better solution. Maybe, you, you know, maybe we just break up <laughs> and you go your own way and and censor your, your Twitter feed. Of, Imagine that, know. just letting people choose whether they want to consume this thing or engage with this thing and not being overly worried that it's the end of society if... Not everyone agrees. <laughs> no, it's all dangerous, Robbie. We must we must stop you from consuming this content and reading these tweets and watching those movies and those comedy specials. You must be stopped. It's dangerous for you. I know. That. I'm sure there's somebody out there who would be like, this guy watches. How many times can one healthy, adjusted adult watch Rick and Morty? This has to be, this has to be stopped. They looked at my Netflix viewing <laughs> habits. <laughs> okay, we'll have more Rising uh, right after this. Dr. Anthony Fauci told CNN's Jim Acosta that he would not serve under Donald Trump if he were to sit in the Oval Office again in 2024. Let's listen. If Trump were to return to the White House as president um, and COVID is still a threat or there's some other public health emergency, would you have confidence in his ability? Uh, would you have confidence in his ability to deal with the, the a pandemic of, of this nature? Would you want to stay on in your post? Uh, well, no, <laughs> to the second <laughs> question. 
the, <laughs> the first question I think is, I knew the answer, know, uh, but I had to ask you. It, it, <laughs> Um, if, if you look at the history of what the response was during the administration, I think, you know, at best you could say it wasn't optimal. And I think just history will, will speak for itself about that. I, I don't need to make any further comment on that, Jim. That's, it's not productive. You would not serve with, with Trump again, though. Right? Fair to say. Right. Right. For sure. You promise? I, I know. Mean. There, the end is in sight, Kim. Oh, my God. I, I, I could not think of a better reason uh, to support Donald Trump's reelection, uh, which I, mean, I, I don't generally support. But, man, would I be happy to, to be rid of, of Fauci. Yeah, I think he might have just swayed a bunch of independents to say, OK, that's it. I'm checking the Trump box. I definitely don't want to see Fauci again. I mean, look, Fauci is 81 years old by the way, turning 82 at the end of the year. By the time Trump were to be reelected, if he gets reelected in 2024, Fauci will be 84 years old when Trump takes office. It's time to go, not because of Trump. It's just time to retire. He's right. been in this position for way too long and he is way past time of passing the baton to somebody else. You know, and, and that's of course risky, not to say that the next person would be any better than, what, than how Fauci has been, but uh, certainly, uh, you know, for him to say that Trump botched the response, who uh, who do we trust for the response for the pandemic at this point? A everybody's botched it. There yeah, was, how, it how was... can you say Trump botched it any more than Biden? More people died of COVID while Biden was president at this point than Trump. Uh, it, you know, it was... It's just it's just Trump was president during the earliest part of, of the pandemic. And not to you know, not to defend him, but like there was more confusion about what we should do. We got terrible guidance from the CDC, uh, which screwed up testing royally. Was that Trump's fault? I think it was the CDC's fault. Uh, or, or maybe you blame Trump for all of it, but you have to blame Biden for, don't you have to lay the deaths at, at, at Biden's feet? Biden, who put yeah. forth, who ordered an, an unconstitutional, an illegal federal uh, vaccine mandate without, you know, unthinkingly, and which was then, you know, shot down rightly by the Supreme Court. Um, we, we continue to mask toddlers in schools for months. The most, the most aggressively locked down, masked up, you know, forcibly to, to avoid COVID populations were the safest populations of all under Biden and, and you know, under Trump as well, to some degree. It, it, look, there's just a, like a lot of wrongdoing, a, a lot of a lot of mistakes by all of our policymakers, our political figures. So for Fauci to say, oh, yeah, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't work with Trump. I mean, good. because <laughs> We want him gone. But it's so ridiculous. It's so overtly political, which is the exact thing that he says that, no, we're just, you know, the science is the science. I'm avoiding the politics. He's absolutely part of the politics. He's a creature of it. And, and that was a, that's a pretty, into clear, a, pr a pretty clear indication that he is. And it's amazing that he's putting blame on someone else other than himself. He's the pandemic czar. He's the one who was supposed to be leading us and guiding us through this. But he has been completely, for one, he's lied to us numerous times. He's gaslit us on other occasions. He has been, uh, he's wishy-washy, flip-flopped on how people should be responding and what people should be doing. Um, and then on top of it, you know, to, encouraged taking people's freedoms away. So Fauci to be pointing the blame at anybody else other than just squarely back at himself as the pandemic bar, czar is to me bizarre and mm -hmm. just a complete 
devoid of reality and what his position during this entire pandemic was supposed to be. What was he supposed to be doing and why wasn't he doing it? He, you know, we're able to point to a million contradictions under Fauci's guidance. That wasn't Donald Trump's fault. Did, did Trump force him to lie? Did Trump force right. him to to contradict himself? Was that did, Donald did Trump, Trump even? Did did, I can't I can't think of something. Maybe there is something. There certainly aren't a lot of things. What are the cases where Fauci said, here's what we should do, and Trump said no? Trump mostly went along with what they were saying. He maybe he started to kind of criticize that there was some backtalking, but I think he basically gave uh, the, the public health establishment basically what they wanted, you know, a few tweets about liberate Michigan or elsewhere aside. So I just I don't I don't understand. I, I can't make sense of why Fauci would have this hostility to Trump specifically, other than he's just a member of Team Blue and what you do on Team Blue is, you know, catastrophize Trump's return. Well, yeah, because Fauci's been made a hero on yeah. the left. Yeah. And so he wants to maintain that hero status, right? So he's got to point at he's got to point the finger at Trump. But the re I mean, look, Trump and Fauci to me are one and the same, very similar personalities, right? They both seem to be very egotistical and they don't want to take the blame. So they're pointing the blame at somebody else, and that's what Fauci's doing by putting it on Trump. And Trump would put it on Fauci, and uh, you know, because of the failures, because it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to control a virus. So, it, which mm -hmm. I think people are now learning that there's as many of the lockdowns and mask wearing and vaccines and everything that everybody's tried, the virus is still circulating around, like it or not. I mean, that's how I caught it because my fiance, his mandated, vac fully vaccinated workplace, they were mandated to get it, circulated it around. And then I caught it here at home, right? And then, he, then they all brought it to their homes. And there's a, it's, it's very difficult to outrun a virus or to hide from a virus. Uh, or to beat a virus, uh, and, and rather than I think kind of having that reality and everybody saying, okay, we've got to do our best to protect the most vulnerable, the elderly, and not the preschool toddlers, like you're mentioning, Robbie. Mm -hmm. You know, they just they they haven't they haven't they they've instead just continued to focus on a zero COVID policy, which you and I have criticized endlessly. But yeah, Fauci is one of the real reasons for that mindset because he hasn't let it go for people. You know, he's starting to, right? And he's starting to say, well, it's not going to go away. It's never going anywhere. But then at the same time, he, he does doublespeak. He'll say, he'll say that, but then he'll behave or give recommendations that make it seem like this is never going to end. Mm. Well, at least we know his retirement at some point is a possibility. So we'll have to we'll have to see how that shakes out. But an interesting <laughs> admission from the perpetual coronavirus czar. Well, I, I would be I would be happy to throw him a retirement party at any time. Say the say the, any word, time. Say the word. A, any time. Tomorrow. Well overdue. Yes. Well overdue. Today. Today. <laughs> Let's make it now. <laughs> oh, all right. We'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Twitter's legal team is saying that Elon Musk has violated their NDA, which could put his takeover of the social media site in jeopardy. And on Friday, Musk tweeted that Twitter deal temporarily on hold pending details supporting calculation that spam slash fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users, which he has said is a sticking point. He goes on to say, quote, any sensible random sampling process is fine if many people independently get similar results for percentage of fake spam duplicate accounts, that will be telling. I picked 100 as the sample size number because that is what Twitter uses to calculate. 
Then on Saturday, Musk tweeted that Twitter accused him of violating their non-disclosure agreement. Twitter legal just called to complain that I violated their NDA by revealing the bot check sample size is 100. This actually happened. Well, here to discuss with us is culture writer, novelist, and columnist at Unheard, Kat Rosenfeld, and host of A Fresh Perspective, contributor for Red State and Liberty Nation, Jeff Charles. Welcome to both of you. Uh, thanks for joining us on uh, here on the show. So, I mean, it, it seems like he maybe then violated the NDA again by saying they called me to say I violated the NDA. Kat, what do you make of this? Uh, it kind of strikes me that maybe both Elon and Twitter are looking for a reason to kind of throw a wrench in this entire deal, um, you know, and, and each blame the other for it. I wouldn't blame him either, you know, if he was trying to sort of, um, you know, find a way to sour things because he changed his mind. Yeah. What do you think, Jeff? Is any what are the chances this actually goes through and Elon acquires Twitter? I think they're probably pretty low. I think it's still too early, honestly, Robbie. I think it's too early to count this whole thing out. I mean, I think that it's very much possible that Elon might be trying to negotiate for a lower price. I mean, because if either party backs out, they have to pay a billion dollars. So I, I think it's still too early to, to rule this whole thing out yet. I think maybe this is just part of the process. Yeah. Um, interesting. It, it, it's so in, it's interesting. So Elon has consistently talked about the spam, uh, fake accounts, etc., as as this major point of concern for him. Um, while simultaneously, you know, talking about the climate of free expression on the platform, he thinks too much content is moderated that ought not to be moderated, that in some heavy-handed and political way, he's actually been much more open on Twitter, talking on Twitter about the biases uh, against the right that he perceives, for instance. Um, you know, Kat, do you think there's any, is there any um, uh, almost uh, something at odds there between saying, no, we need to take down all these, all, all these kinds of accounts that are so-called spam or fake, or, but we also have to have this much less regulatory environment so that everyone can feel free to express what they think? I don't know that there's so much tension there. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's this attempt to kind of implement some kind of quality control, some kind of moderation, which it's widely accepted that you need on social media networks if they're going to remain usable. Um, it seems like um, Elon Musk wants to implement this in such a way that actual human beings are maximally able to express themselves, but that there's not a lot of uh, sort of fake accounts, bots and so on, clouding things up, uh, contributing to toxicity. It's it's an interesting question. I suspect that what makes Twitter a toxic place is actually human behavior. I don't think that it's bots. <laughs> um, so I don't I don't think that this is going to be the solution he's looking for. But I don't necessarily think there's a tension between those two things. Yeah, Jeff, are you active much on Twitter? Do you find yourself inundated by bots? I, I don't feel like I see a whole lot of bots on there. Uh, I mean, I do know that they're existing. I see certain accounts that, you know, when you go, they're clearly all just a bunch of advertisements because the bot has taken over. But otherwise, I don't really see this big of a problem. I mean, are you experiencing a giant problem with bots on Twitter? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm on Twitter probably more than I should be. <laughs> and that being said, <laughs> I, I do 
I, I do see a decent number of bots and sometimes it's hard to tell, but I mean, sometimes, I mean, I'll get some responses on my TL and I'd be like, oh, oh, that's a bot. And they do kind of add some toxicity into the equation, but I have to agree with Kat. I mean, most of the toxicity comes from uh, regular people, but I will say, I mean, with all the concerns over misinformation, I mean, we know that Russia and other foreign powers try to use bots as well to spread misinformation. So, I mean, I, 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 I agree. I don't think that there is a tension between those two. I just think that, you know, the, as far as toxicity goes, there's not much that Musk can do about that. <laughs> yeah, Kim, it's all those pro-Kim Russian bots in our YouTube <laughs> comments, right? Uh, that, that's what yeah, I've that's accused what you is. of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Robbie accuses me of having a bunch of bot, a bot army that goes yep. around commenting. <laughs> Kim Iverson Nation. Uh, that's a YouTube problem, not a, not a Twitter problem. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been interesting to me to see Elon Musk, you know, historical, and he said, right, that he would not have considered himself previously a figure of the right. Uh, he's, you know, he's someone who makes uh, environmentally friendly automobiles, right? That's his major co- kind of contribution. Uh, the space stuff would not have been coded in a left or right direction until recently. I'm actually, I'm not even really sure that it is coded. It's one of the only things that isn't really coded is like space Yet. exploration. Yeah, I'm sure it'll get there, but uh, well, I, I guess there was some uh, it, some it from the far, right from the left wing. being it is. Yeah, right, it is. It, billionaires right. going to space. You know, shouldn't right. you invest your money here? That kind of thing that I yeah. found somewhat obnoxious. But my my point being, but Elon is now uh, sort of coded as a right a figure on the right. At, at least the reaction to his attempt to purchase Twitter, you know, the thunderous kind of condemnation from, um, from ma- the mainstream media, like, oh my, this is the end of days. This is, you know, this is like the Nazi takeover of Twitter. I mean, th- this is the kind of paranoia in fairly mainstream uh, circles um, you, you were seeing, uh, that I was seeing. You know, what, what do you make of this kind of uh, dynamic, Kat? And, and, you know, what does this say about, I guess, again, the problem is people, how, how unhealthy we all are to be so freaked out about this kind of thing? Yeah, you know, I think that for the uh, the media journalism, um, you know, academia crew who kind of hangs out on Twitter the most, uh, that the perception that Elon might come in and, and take it over was sort of like, you know, here comes this this sort of coarse person uh, stinking up the country club in a certain way. You know, they wanted to preserve this space that was very friendly to them. And the sense that a person might be coming into power and starting to sort of make rules in that space that were not necessarily sympathetic to their particular ideologies or worldviews, you know, that was suddenly very threatening um, and and very frightening in a, in a we want to maintain the sanctity of our club kind of way. Mm. Jeff, do you still hope that Elon takes it over? Oh, yes, 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 very much so. I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving this whole thing. And, and to piggyback off of what Kat said, there was somebody else who disrupted a major institution. His name was Donald Trump. So Elon Musk is doing to Twitter what Trump did to the Republican Party and the political system. And, and, you know, and, and I'm here for it. As far as him being on the right, Elon Musk is not on the right. I mean, when you hear people say that, you have to consider the source. I mean, this is coming from people who think that anybody who's to the right of Bernie Sanders is a far-right extremist. And I think we have to be careful with that because Elon may agree with the right on certain things, but it doesn't mean that he's necessarily a conservative. Yeah, Jeff, right. how do you yeah. think it's it's happened that now saying things like, I want free speech, I want an exchange of ideas, I, w- I want a platform to try to approach the discourse with some neutrality and not you know massively bias, bias it in favor of progressives of the Democratic Party or, or, or any one ideology, 
And saying that, you know, which, which would have been a, a very benign or maybe even liberal kind of statement of principle, is now considered a hard right viewpoint. You know, it's amazing how that happened, Robbie. I mean, because it used to be the left, especially in Berkeley, who was uh, advocating for free speech and the pendulum has swung the other way. I mean, and I think when you're in a situation where you, your, your views are being suppressed, yeah, you're going to glom on to the spirit of that First Amendment. So, I mean, I, I still, but I still think that there are plenty of people on the left who value free speech. I mean, I'm, it's mostly the far left who's complaining about it. But if you take your average person who maybe votes Democrat, they want free speech too, and they want a free exchange of ideas. Yeah. What, what do you th- What do you think about this, Cat? It, it's you know a problem that I started noticing maybe ten years ago, but it just it's it's gets worse and worse and has reached some fever pitch almost of hostility to the idea of free speech or the idea of people disagreeing with you or what if somebody says something wrong, it's going to be misinformation, it needs to be policed. Um, I, I find it to be just a very concerning development that is so pervasive in maybe the far left. It's pretty pervasive in a kind of mainstream progressive circle as well, as far as I can tell. Yeah, it does seem to be. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, we on the left had to advocate very hard for, you know, the the uh, cross submerged in urine to be shown at the Brooklyn Museum, or mm-hmm. maybe conflating two things. But, um, you know, I, th- I have a theory that this is actually related to the kind of shift in uh, where power has coalesced, you know, at the, you know, in the 90s, and the early 2000s, it was still much more of a, a sort of a conservative culture, or at least, um, you know, center-right culture. And now the left has become very culturally dominant. And I think a lot of the people who were claiming to have very strong principled commitments to freedom of speech and freedom of expression actually were just sort of cynically using that to advance themselves into positions where they could grab hold of the censor's pen and start using it for themselves. I think so as well. Well, we're so happy to have you both with us. Thank you for joining us. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Lawmakers wrote letters to the four leading infant formula manufacturers last week demanding answers about what led to the current supply problems and what the companies are doing about it. The four companies, Similac, Emphamil, Gerber and the leading generic label producer oversee nearly 90% of the formula manufacturing here in the U.S. The requests come as President Biden announced to the FDA that the FDA will allow more importation of baby formula to ease the shortage. This week, the agency is expected to detail how suppliers abroad can get their products to the U.S. The director of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese, told CNN that the administration became aware of the impending shortage when the Abbott Michigan plant was shuttered by the FDA back in February. Now, Abbott said last week they would be ready to restart production in the next two weeks once the FDA approves and noted it could take up to eight weeks to restock shelves with the formula. President of the Center for Medicine in Public Interest and former associate commissioner to the FDA, Peter Pitts, joins us now to discuss. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, we're so uh, grateful to have your expertise available to us. Uh, walk us through, you know, what happened from from your standpoint. Uh, obviously, there were actual deaths, I believe, of two infants, and so the FDA felt it had to uh, shutter the plant. But it feels like we were all taken quite uh, by surprise here, and and you know, people there are sick children or immunocompromised children who need access to those products who aren't getting it. So that's a health risk as well. 
Well, taken by surprise, I think, is the key phrase there. FDA closed its facility in February, and, and rightfully so, uh, lacked safety protocols. And the only thing worse than a shortage of baby formula is substandard baby formula on the market. So the FDA was exactly right to close the facility. That being said, what they should have done was begin a very robust education campaign to let parents know that in a couple of weeks down the line, there might be spot shortages. Uh, talk to your pediatrician, you know, think about opportunities. Please don't hoard. They should have talked to retail outlets and stopped potential hoarding right there. Uh, they didn't. So that's that's bad on the on the FDA. Uh, you know, the, the bigger shot across the bow here is baby formula is a consolidated industry. Only a few manufacturers are, are in the game. And when one goes offline, whether it's a safety issue or an earthquake or, God forbid, a terrorist attack, shortage is going to happen. The FDA uh, on all sides of its portfolio, food and drugs, should really start thinking about strategies and tactics to put into place when this happens again. Well, and actually they are, I mean, they, they did talk about that a bit. There was some chatter urging Biden to invoke the Defense Production Act. So maybe that is sort of what you're talking about here. But uh, former, now former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said on Friday that the administration is looking into this. Let's watch. There have been discussion and some members of Congress have raised questions, say, of the Defense Production Act, which that would be something which is on the table. We've not made a decision about, but would be would help address uh, uh, issues over the long term. Uh, what we are doing here is we're trying to be to ensure that states and others can plan over the long term, as in the coming months. There's not. A yeah, I mean, do you think that's what should be happening right now, Peter? Well, first of all, as far as the Defense Production Act goes, that, that's a clueless comment because you can't call up a milk company and say, start producing baby formula. They're two completely different things. Baby formula is a, is a delicate, complicated chemical proposition. And one of the things the FDA did immediately after shuttering the Abbott facility was to reach out to all of the other companies that make baby formula here in the U.S. to have them ramp up their production, which they did. So that certainly helped to ameliorate the shortages a little bit. Bringing in baby formula from overseas will help, too, although baby formula is a... Uh, you know, low margin, high volume proposition. There's no secret warehouse of baby formula in either Europe or Canada. And certainly when you look at Canada, it's a big country on the map, but not a lot of people. And we can't expect Europe and Canada to, to create shortages in their own country to supply us. Although Abbott, to its credit, is bringing in a product from its FDA approved facilities in Ireland. So right now we're kind of at a uh, ad hoc proposition to solve the problem. We're four to six, possibly 10 weeks out to end it entirely. But I think that stopping hoarding and uh, pointing parents back to their pediatricians uh, is the right way to go, at least for the time being. What about uh, the kinds of baby formula that are widely available in Europe that the FDA will not allow Americans to legally have access to? You know, seems like and I've been a major critic of the FDA, you know, throughout the pandemic. Uh, you know, we, we're glad I'm glad they got the vaccines approved as fast as they did. But there's a, a long history in the organization of, you know, of, of taking a long time to allow Americans to, you know, to try products they want to try. Having a scenario where there's just four baby formula companies because, the, you know, the market is, is so there's so much regulatory barrier to other entrants just it seems disastrous. And you know, Europeans take this baby formula. I have to I have to believe it's perfectly safe or, or that are at least that our, our mothers and children should have the right to try it if they're comfortable with it. Well, you know, that's a good point. I mean, the difference between European baby formula and American baby formula more or less is that the labeling is different. So the uh, the not in getting that product into the U.S. isn't safety. It's it's a regulatory issue. And I don't, I don't want to say it's a nitty issue. It's important, but it's certainly something the FDA could have jumped on a lot quicker because when you, when you take 
a major manufacturer offline, uh, you know shortage is going to happen. And we shouldn't be having this conversation now. This conversation should have happened in February. So, you know, we were behind the curve and we're paying the price for it right now. Wow. That's yeah. pretty. Yeah. That's Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm blown away. But it's a labeling issue that uh, rather than a safety issue, it's uh, that's that's pretty. I, that's got to be frustrating for, you know, for a lot of parents. I mean, I, you know, glad to hear the honesty about that. But it's it's just, you know, shortages that uh, that could have been. There's nothing we can do now, but could have been prevented, you know, months or years ago uh, with some well, first, swift direction. Well, first of all, it's, it's frustrating for me having yeah. to uh, come on uh, TV and do interviews defending the FDA's action. The FDA did the right thing and then they stopped. And of course, the FDA commissioner works for the president. So ultimately, this ratchets up to the White House. Uh, I can't imagine that the FDA, that the White House knew anything about this until 10 days ago. Astonishing. Oh, <laughs> and so now you're saying that we're still several weeks out before we actually solve the, the shortage crisis. So what are these babies and mothers supposed to do in the meantime? I mean, this is just. Well, well personally, so the good news is the, this fact, this factory, this facility is going to come online shortly. Uh, we should have the end of these shortages four to six weeks. And I know that sounds like a short amount of time if you don't have a baby. But if you do and parents are already on the razor's edge with, with the young children, they're going to have to continue to scramble. Uh, a lot of churches, synagogues, community groups are creating mothers' organizations to help share baby formula. Hospitals uh, have supplies that might be redistributed. The WIC program needs to rethink what uh, families on WIC are, are allowed to purchase. So we're doing a lot, and we're doing it quickly, and hopefully we'll get to the right place. But again, this is a warning shot across the bow, not just for baby formula, but for other consolidated industries such as insulin or uh, sterile injectables for hospitals or IV tubing. Uh, we've got to keep our eye on the prize. Shortages happen. They can be predicted. And we've got to get a strategy in place to make sure that we're not just on the ball when it comes to drug shortages, but also food product shortages. Yeah. Sounds like a major national security crisis, actually. Yeah. Well, it could become one for sure. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Can't tell you how much we appreciate uh, learning more about this from you. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll have more Rising right after this. Billionaire Jeff Bezos took shots at President Biden for his comments on inflation over the weekend. Biden tweeted amid growing concerns of the cost of gas prices and groceries. You want to bring down inflation? Let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Well, in response, Jeff Bezos, billionaire owner of one of the world's wealthiest corporations, Amazon, tweeted, the newly created disinformation board should review this tweet, or maybe they need to form a new non-sequitur board instead. Raising corporate taxes is fine to discuss. Taming inflation is critical to discuss. Mushing them together is just misdirection. Here with us to discuss is author and deputy opinion editor at Newsweek, Batya Ungar-Sargan. Welcome, Batya. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so this is a great topic to discuss. This might actually, I don't know, this might divide the room here. I kind of like Bezos, Elon, other billionaires saying, you know, we've had enough of like this mindless being bashed for everything uh, kind of. I actually like them speaking up and saying no government, like this is this is wrong. And actually to twist the knife with that absolutely correct calling BS on this misinformation board, right, that only corrects, that's only ever going to correct in one direction because it's, you know, run by people who only want to fact check uh, things that in some cases aren't even wrong, like the Hunter Biden laptop story, and never anything on the other side. You know, what do you, I'm really interested to hear what you think about this, Batya. 
So to me, this really perfectly encapsulated the problem with the discussion about economic policy in America, because it showed the sort of two sides of the debate and how both of them are, I, I think, making the same mistake. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have President Biden saying, you know, we need a higher corporate tax and that's somehow going to solve inflation, right? And then on the other hand, you have, you know, this sort of corporate overlord, Jeff Bezos, saying, no, we need to, you know, well, we can discuss that, but, you know, that has nothing to do with inflation. And, you know, we know that he's sort of against sort of, pay, you know, corporations paying higher taxes. And I think that the problem is that both of those positions, the sort of pro-corporate, let corporations do whatever they want position, and then the tax them at a higher rate, have the government collect those taxes and redistribute them to lower income Americans. Both of those are fundamentally at odds with what the working class in America actually needs, which is to be paid a living wage. Like what they don't need is for corporations to be hampered by, you know, impossibly high corporate taxes that will, you know, hamper corporations ability to create jobs and provide jobs. But they also don't need corporations to be left to their own devices and then pay them starvation wages. Like even in New York City, if you're an Amazon driver, you're making $15. Sure, that's double the national minimum wage, but that is not a living wage in New York. So I feel like this 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 exchange perfectly encapsulated what looks like a debate about economic policy, but really is just, you know, the elites of both sides catering to what their own elites want, which is on the left, rich liberals want to, you know, keep getting richer and richer and then pay higher and higher taxes and pay off the working class to have those starvation wages at their jobs on the left. And then on the right, what you have, you have is like, you know, corp you know, corporate freedom to do whatever you want and pay people whatever you want. It seems like Biden is just giving lip service to Americans just to say this is what's causing the inflation totally. problem. It doesn't seem like he knows what the inflation, what's causing the inflation problem. Okay. And so he's just using these catchphrases that he knows are popular, like, well, it's make the rich pay their fair share. That's mm -hmm. it's it's Putin's problem, Putin's price hike. Right. So, I mean, Biden, I mean, is he just lost on this? I mean, what, what do you think? What should he be saying compared to what he is saying to Americans? Well, I don't think Biden probably writes his own tweets, you know, so <laughs> I feel like whoever wrote that tweet, but I totally agree with you. It's exactly like, you know, Putin's price hike, right? This is the next stage of the Putin's price hike, right? It's like, blame whoever the left is mad at for inflation, right? Like, that is just so totally mm -hmm. random. Like, mm -hmm. Bezos is obviously totally correct. Like, corporate taxes have nothing to do with inflation. So, yeah, Kim, I think that's spot on. This just, I think, you know, pre the president has really struggled to find not just just um, messaging around inflation that will be compelling to Americans, but more importantly, policy around inflation yeah. that would actually help struggling Americans. Yeah, I'm really interested if you think that we've reached sort of a turning point in basically how much uh, pointless, uh, very ill-informed abuse from people like Elizabeth Warren or Biden's Twitter account or whoever behind it, you know, the kind of mindless bashing. I, th th I know there, there are thoughtful criticisms of, of corporations or some of the behavior of Amazon. There's more thoughtful criticism. And then there's less, you know, thoughtful criticism like this. And I, I'm interested, if, I wonder if the people in those, you know, the, again, roles like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, you know, are they, they, they getting more vocal, a little bit more defined. Maybe they feel like they don't have to bow anymore to, uh, you know, I wonder if we're reaching a moment where they don't have to, you know, go with what the wokest of the woke think or like they're getting a little bit testy about it. Do you, do you, don't, do you see that happening? Do you think we're maybe reaching a turning point there? 
Well, I think, you know, Elon Musk is a bit of a, you know, kind of a bit of a show pony on this front. He loves to go on Twitter and sort of, you know, bash politicians while, of course, bending the knee to China and doing whatever they ask him to. Um, I, yeah, I think from Bezos, maybe, yeah, that there's a little bit of sort of pushback. Now he's saying, hey, you know, maybe stop kicking me around so much. But again, I think that that kicking around is such a misdirection, like someone like Senator Warren, you know, I, I just I, what I want to know from people like Senator Warren is, um, OK, it's so to what do you describe, you know, the 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 amazing economy under President Trump, if not to lowering the corporate tax rate? Um, we You can look at countries in Scandinavia. I mean, Sweden's corporate tax rate is 20 percent, which is lower than ours. Right. A lot of places that have a kind of democratic socialist point of view understand that, like raising the corporate tax rate is not necessarily a way to that's actually not necessarily a way to help the the, the lower classes. And so um, to me, that sort of the, the, the whole conversation seems to me to be be about messaging rather than policy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just so, so disappointing. Right. Everything costs. The major problem that I see facing the working class is that in America, everything costs too much. Obviously, it does with, you know, with inflation, with literal prices of goods, food, baby formula, oil. But it's been the case for a long time, even before that, that education costs too much. Child care costs too much. Medical care costs too much. Um, actually, ironically, a lot of the sectors that the government has been very involved in have gotten a lot less affordable um, for for working people. And that's not you know, that's that's not really a it's, it's a technical issue. It's not it's not that we don't have that we haven't appropriated enough money from corporations to make those things affordable. There's something else going on. And until we grapple with that, we're still going to have these problems. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, you hear a lot of people saying, oh, manufacturing is not coming back. OK, so if manufacturing is not coming back, if the, you know, the, the, the jobs where we're seeing increases are in places like trucking and Amazon, right, and deliveries and all of these, you know, service industry jobs, if we're saying that's the new American working class, then it behooves the left and the right to figure out a way to make those jobs an avenue to the American dream. That is the number one priority. If we're going to say that, the you know, the majority of working class Americans are going to be employed at Walmart and Amazon, you know, in the future. And that's the future we're looking down. We have to find a way. Both sides need to find a plan to make those jobs have a living wage so we can get back on track to the American dream. Not for those far right Nazi trucker terrorists. No, <laughs> we can't possibly do that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Mainstream, mainstream Republicans are, are the kinds of people who, uh, who shoot up um, um, uh, super black supermarkets, according to Rolling Stone, as we discussed in the A Block, right? Yes. It's contemptible. Uh, yeah. Well, Bacha, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Fascinating thank discussion, you so as always. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. You too. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Both Finnish and Swedish leadership confirmed over the weekend that their governments will seek NATO membership. Their respective parliaments are expected to discuss and approve the decision in the coming weeks. The move marks a stark departure from decades of neutrality for both countries. AP confirms that Sweden has not been a member of a military alliance since the Napoleonic Wars, while Finland has remained non-aligned since World War II. The road to NATO membership for the two Nordic countries could prove difficult. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Ryapkov told State News Today that Finland and Sweden should have no illusions that we will simply put up with it, and nor should Brussels, Washington, and other NATO capitals. 
Additionally, Turkish President Erdogan told reporters that his government is not favorable to NATO bids from Helsinki and Stockholm, indicating that Turkey could use its member status to veto the two countries' admittance. So, yeah, and that's probably likely. I mean, all 30 NATO countries have to agree to allow in new members. So Finland and, and Sweden can say that they want to join NATO all they want. Um, if any of the countries of the other 30 countries block, then they won't be admitted into NATO. So it's it's highly likely that they're not going to be admitted into NATO. Turkey in particular, uh, I would think, doesn't want to send they don't want to go to war with Russia at the end of the day. That's, I think, what Turkey is really trying to avoid. They've been playing footsie with Russia for a long time now. And I, I don't even know if Turkey, you know, Turkey's still staying in NATO and they do provide us the largest ground military force. But, you know, they, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if Turkey really wants to stick around in the alliance. But as of now, they are still there. There's no real talk of them actually exiting NATO you know, it's just kind of a, they just behave a little funny, but they certainly have the, the ability to block. And if Russia, you know, Finland, now Sweden, I don't know if Russia really, you know, Sweden's not on Russia's border, but Finland certainly is. They share quite a large border with one another. So that could prove a problem for Russia if Finland is admitted into NATO and if nuclear weapons were to be taken in. I, I don't know, Finland would agree to it, to house nukes, you know, up on the Russian border. I doubt that they would, but but if they're a NATO country, you never know. I suppose anything's possible and that's the problem. So that would be obviously a huge, uh, that would be a huge security issue for Russia. It, obviously, Finland feels like they're having a huge security issue with Russia on their border as well with the nukes that they've got. So, but it's an interesting, it's interesting to see how this one plays out. I don't expect that they will be admitted. I do think that at least Turkey, if not a few more, will block the NATO uh, admittance. In. And not only that, but it's kind of a slap in the face to Ukraine, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, I agree with you that I, I don't think they actually will be admitted. I think the most interesting thing is that they want to be admitted now, uh, which you know historically has not been uh, their clear uh, position. I mean, it speaks to a Look, this was a this war was a very bad idea for Russia. Now they have everyone wanting to get in NATO, and we could have been clearer that Ukraine was not going to join NATO. Absolutely, you know, we, NATO has itself made a lot of mistakes. So, like, what what is its purpose for even existing? Really, following the fall of the Cold War, and you know, we're very evasive about whether a nation like Ukraine, which is not qualified to join, you know, there was a kind of will they, won't they thing that that made uh, that that and that antagonized Russia that Putin was very clear about that that he did not like. But but that does not, you know, excuse what ends up being a pretty bad calculation because now they're bogged down in this horrific war in Ukraine and other now more countries want to be involved in NATO, uh, which is, you know, what happens when you do this kind of thing. Yeah, you know, and, and again, it'll be NATO's never been tested, so we don't really know you know, there's definitely this the the idea that NATO works really well because because it's never been tested. So people say, well, that's why it works, right? Because Russia's never committed an act of aggression against a NATO country. But we actually don't know what would happen if Russia did. I mean, there we know theoretically what is supposed to happen, that all of the countries are supposed to come together and behave as if they themselves are at war, um, that they themselves have been invaded. But um, it's never been tested. 
I I don't know if I put it past. I, I if Finland were to join NATO, I guess maybe we would find out if Russia would actually test it and start to have acts of aggression against Finland. And then the other question is, would all of these other soldiers, you know, this is why Turkey, I think, would block it. They then have to ask, are they willing to send their sons to go and defend Finland? Will their sons accept that? Will those mothers accept that, that their sons have been sent off to go and defend Finland or to defend Montenegro or all of these other countries that we've been adding into NATO? It's a really good question. When you've got 30 countries now in the alliance, are you willing to go and defend? It's not about defending your own country anymore. It's about defending right. somebody else's country as if it's your own. Are you really willing to do that? Right. But that's, yeah. yeah, you're right. But that is, I mean, that would kind of be a pretty interesting if, if their answer there was no. I mean, they entered the alliance, right? Because what if they get invaded? Then we'll come, you know, then American mothers will send their sons to die for Turkey, right? And we just, like, that's just the expectation we do that. And, and you know, it, it could have been them. And they're going to say, oh, no, it's, if it's, yes, we want you to defend us, but we're not going to do anything. Not that they're literally saying that, but that would be a pretty, pretty hypocritical, you know, kind of stand, which is the problem with this sort of arrangement in general. We're, we're not being invaded and we're, you know, expected to provide significant defense for these places because Russia is, has been historically an issue, and we, we don't, it, it, is, it is bad for us, it's bad for entire global stability if Russia invades any country. So NATO should serve the purpose of disincentivizing Russia from invading. So, right, does Finland joining NATO make an invasion by Russia more or less likely is what we should, we should be thinking through. If, if, so right. we can say they're not going to join NATO, but you can't, it, right, if, if not joining NATO convinces Russia not to invade, then that's also, then great. That's the, that's the goal. The goal is just to get Russia not to invade places, us not invade places, not have wars over these things. So if we can accomplish that by not having the countries in NATO, that's absolutely fine. If adding them increases the risk of some kind of war, then it's totally backfiring. Uh, so, so that, like, it doesn't, it's not that NATO is this great, great thing and we need everybody to be in NATO. We need, we need to stop wars from happening. So it's only working yeah. if it's serving that purpose. I'd be interested to see how France feels about Sweden and Finland joining NATO, you know, because we have to remember that NATO is really a U.S.-backed military alliance. We mm -hmm. do most of the spending. We are responsible for most of the defense. But alongside the United States, you do have the U.K. with their Navy. You have France, which is also one of the bigger military um, players, and Turkey. It's really the four countries. And, and the others are really benefiting from the military might of those four other countries, of Turkey, France, United States, and the UK. So it'll be interesting to see how France feels about it. France has been actually actively trying to, to negotiate things with Ukraine and Russia, to try to ease the tensions. Uh, Macron has been now called a Putin puppet because he does regular phone calls with Putin to try to get some negotiation going. I'm sure Turkey is doing something very, very similar. Luckily, these two very large military countries are actually trying to actively um, advocate for more peace and they're trying to tone things down. So I'm, I'm curious to see how France feels about whether or not Finland and Sweden can join the NATO alliance. Because again, you know, Finland doesn't have a lot of people, so it's not like their military can be all that big and robust. So it's really up to these other countries that are providing more of the military might to step in and potentially defend Finland against Russia if Russia were to invade. So, you know, it's 
there's a lot of it's it's not just oh a, a country's joining and it's strengthening a lot of times that country when it joins takes away more than it strengthens like montenegro i keep bringing them up i feel i'm sorry montenegro but you know does anybody know where it is on a map why are they a nato why are they in nato are they are do we really think montenegro is going to come to the defense of the united states i mean i'm sure they would they they'd send some some soldiers but how many do they have right. you know the the place is tiny so, you know, there's a lot of questions that go into these NATO, into adding countries into the NATO alliance. I'd be, but again, I'm curious to see what France, if France would actually be a country that potentially blocks it as well. Yeah. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Today is the Supreme Court's first opinion issuance day since Politico published Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion on abortion. This morning, the Supreme Court issued an opinion on Patel versus Garland, ruling that courts do not have jurisdiction to review certain executive branch findings that determine whether someone should be deported. It's a very interesting ruling with Gorsuch mm -hmm. joining the liberal justices. It was five to four, but Gorsuch was with uh, Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor. Uh, the Supreme Court also sided with Senator Ted Cruz in his First Amendment challenge to federal campaign finance law dictating how and when a candidate can recoup their lo loans that they made to their own campaigns. That one was 6-3 along uh, political lines. And the court also agreed to take up two new cases, Jones versus Hendricks, which has to do with prison inmates, and SEC versus Cochran. And over the weekend, demonstrations in support of abortion protections took place across all corners of the country. Organizers say 380 bans off our bodies protests were planned in cities including New York, D.C., Los Angeles, Seattle, and Nashville. According to an NBC News poll conducted after the Alito draft opinion leaked, most Americans still support upholding Roe v. Wade. 60% of respondents believe abortion should be legal most or all of the time. That's compared to 37% who believe abortion should be illegal in most or all cases. Uh, also, I found that there was another uh, poll that came out saying that this really hasn't moved the needle as far as how people are going to vote, um, that they're still going to vote pretty much the way that they were planning on voting prior to this leak coming out. So also thought that was pretty interesting. I, I, I mean, I think that's probably I, I don't know if that really would sway people from one side of the aisle to the other, maybe, you know, with independence, I suppose. But I don't know if it's that much of an issue to a lot of voters for them to say, well, no, we, we must have this, you know, rather than allowing the states, I suppose, to be able to do what they want. So much happens from day to day. It's hard for me to imagine that abortion, you know, whatever's happening here will still be in the minds of voters months from now when the election rolls around. You know, people it's have been pretty clear based on the polling that inflation is their number one concern. They have financial concerns. They're worried about how they are going to feed their families, how they're going to afford gas, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, as that continues to get worse, you know, you have more people who are feeling really left out by the Biden administration that whatever their plans are, they're not good enough. So right up against that, I don't know that. Now, it, it could be the case that if this, this decision goes the way it's expected to go based on the draft that now you, you, ha you don't have Roe v. Wade anymore. States can go their own way. You know, you could have some state. But this, I guess the states that are most likely to go super restrictive on abortion are so they're so red anyway that it's not. Gonna, even if there's some voters in there that 
uh, in those states that you know get really upset about that and we, who who were you know not voting Democrat, but now they're going to vote Democrat over that. There's probably not enough of them to change the composition of any of the states that are going to go as extreme in that direction, right? right. So even even if right. it even if it hurts you, it, you know, if it hurts you in those places, it, that doesn't the math doesn't matter on that. Yeah, I mean, if you're in a from a you know, I'm I'm from Idaho. It's a real conservative state. It's a state that's expected to ban abortions if Roe v. Wade gets overturned. And yeah, it, there's definitely a lot of Democrats, you know, inside, especially like Boise, for example, a larger city. So bigger cities. Uh, in every state, even the red ones, tend to be blue. So there's going to be a big uprising in the major cities, I would imagine, people feeling very uh, limited by their state. Um, the states have always been very limiting in a lot of other ways. Like, for example, in Idaho, you can't buy liquor except through a, a government-run liquor store. You, know, you can't just go to the grocery store and buy liquor like you can here in California. Um, so there's a lot of restrictions. But I don't. You're right. The vast majority of the voters are still going to be voting red, and they support the idea of banning abortion completely. They feel like it's a a, a murder issue, um, you know that, and that's how they feel about it. And so I don't see, unless there's like a, a major shift in the demographics or just in the way people view abortion. Um, you know, but the, the thing is, is that the 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 mentality around the abortion debate has shifted so much. You know, it was I, I think even just a few decades ago, more people were okay with it. I think than now, actually, I feel people have become less liberal on this issue. Um, I've seen polls where actually it's now more 50-50, whereas at one point, like in the 60s or 70s, or let's say the 70s or 80s, I suppose, um, it was more like 65 to 70 percent of the country was okay with it. And now I think that number has dwindled. So we're actually seeing a reversal in the attitude about it going in a more conservative direction than the other way. And um so that's, you know, I think that's also why we're at where we're at with this. Well, there's it's a vast, there's a, there's a majority out there. There's a significant, it is a majority of people who want, who think abortion should be legal in some cases, for in, in a lot cases, of cases for people right. who certainly need it, but also that it should be restricted in some cases and, and maybe is not a thing to celebrate or encourage on its own. And, you know, what sort of solutions or interventions or things can we, you know, pursue to, to make it so that it, it doesn't come to that. And that has a, that's a, a very large constituency that is not really heard from in the, the kind of screaming matches over this issue. Um, but yeah, but speaking of places where uh, there will be certainly more restrictive laws in place should Roe collapse. Yesterday, Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts told CNN, should the Supreme Court overturn Roe, he'll hold a special legislative session to institute a complete abortion ban in the state. And I don't know, complete it, how complete is yeah. complete, but... <laughs> yeah, just saying that you can't get one at all. Um, and I don't think that that's a popular viewpoint. I certainly no, think that more... Yeah, I, I think that more and more people have become more conservative on the abortion debate, meaning that they were at one point saying it's fine anytime, whatever. And now they say, well, you know, maybe only in the first 12 weeks or the first right. 10 weeks or eight weeks or something. So attitudes, I do think, have become a little bit more conservative. I don't know if they're this conservative, though, where they say we just want to ban it outright completely. You can't even get one. But then, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion even of banning like the morning after pill uh, or even wasn't one governor talking about banning even contraception? 
saying that they don't even believe in contraception. <laughs> right, which is absolutely crazy. And, and their assurances, the assurances from sort of the very religious conservative wing of the Republican Party is never reassuring on that. They'll say, oh, yeah, we're not focused on that right now. But, yeah, right. But you clearly would be focused on that if you had the, if you thought you had the ability to do it, which is not a, yeah, which is absolutely uh, crazy. I want, I mean, I want uh, contraception to be more easily available to people. I think it's excessively right. gatekept by the FDA for no reason, uh, by the you know medical establishment. They make you see a doctor. People people know how to use these products safely. They know what they need. It's uh, it's crazy, right. but but I, at, but I like you. like you said, the yeah the the ten weeks, the fifteen weeks, twelve weeks, whatever it is, that's more in line as it turns out with what Europe has, which we're you know always being told we should be by liberals, right? That Europe's why can't we be more like Europe? Well, they have they don't have a you know a total you can get an abortion right up until the very end sort of regime in general. That you know they have a policy that actually looks I don't know somewhat sensible or somewhat in keeping to me, with what sort of the median person, a lot of people in America think about this issue. And, uh, and, and I think that's important to know. Well, they, they're, it's still a very, you know, Europe is still very Christian and they're, they're very religious still. Um, and much of the, you know, like in Germany, for example, I believe that you have to actually tell the government you don't want your money to go to the church. You actually have to say, ah, I, you know, don't send some of my money, some tithes or something right. to, to the church. So I think they're still very ingrained um, in a more religious kind of way of thinking. Same with South America. South America is also much more conservative when it comes to this, to the abortion um, well, so issue. South America is actually very uh, religious. You're, you're right. Europe is, has a, such a legacy of Christendom in, you know, ingrained in some way. But the people are, I think, more secular than we are to a to a substantial degree, even if the laws are still corresponding to the time period when they were more religious. It, it, but it is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, so, there are some yeah. places, but they're not. I think their church attendance rates are like way lower than ours. I think, but maybe that's not everything. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. They well, they, every every building's a church over there, so they're always in <laughs> <Okay>. church. Uh, <laughs> uh, the New York Times, though, by the way, has reported that Justice Clarence Thomas told conference-goers at an event in Dallas this weekend that the leaked Roe draft opinion has destroyed trust within SCOTUS. He said, quote, what happened is tremendously bad. I wonder how long we're going to have these institutions at the rate we're undermining them. I don't know. What do you think about oh. that? I mean, I don't see the courts going away anytime soon. I mean, you know, for him to say that the... I Look, I get the idea that SCOTUS is supposed to be this kind of um, above the fray, above politics... Is supposed to stay out of all of that, but that's just not that's just not the reality of SCOTUS. It's never been that way. They've often ruled based on the climate, uh, the the cultural climate of the day, uh, and they are a political body, whether they like it or not. They're they're appointed by politicians, uh, and then they're confirmed by politicians, and these politicians are selecting SCOTUS justices based on a lot of uh, politics. So, you know, I, I, I understand that this whole, the leak was a, was a, you know, this, oh my gosh, this has never happened before. I don't even know if that's really 100% true. I think it has uh, to some, you know, maybe some other levels happened before, maybe not to this degree, but I don't think this is undermining the institution any more than the institution is already undermined. Not that, you know, again, I think SCOTUS is, 
is actually still very much a political institution, unfortunately, and fortunately at times, because it does rule, like I said, you know, with the climate of the culture. It does. I probably one of my most sort of institutionally conservative views is that I, 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 I like the Supreme Court and I want it to maintain its credibility. The fact that it has more credibility than Congress or the executive branch is something we should try to protect somewhat. So I, I, I do take his point that this kind of stuff starts to undermine. It starts to make the Supreme Court look like it's part of this ridiculous theater of you know the television show Veep or just the craziness of DC, and we ought not to to give that impression. Uh, not that this you know indiv- individual thing is the end of the world, but I just think we have to live in reality. And the reality of it is, is that SCOTUS has always been a political uh, a political arm, just as much as any of the other branches. I mean, you know, I, we could try to pretend like these guys are all the you know these wise old people in their robes. Uh, making decisions truly based on, you know, what is the best for the people and, uh, you know, all of these like wisdom things, like there's some sort of, you know, like, but it's just not reality. I mean, the reality is, is that it's, it's been an activist court for a long time and it, it has been, and they oftentimes will go back and reverse a ruling that was once made by a previous SCOTUS and, you know, that is what it is. So I, I don't think that this undermined them any, uh, you know, and I, I actually think it's fine to go ahead and put a little pressure on them. Uh, that They make decisions based on that anyway, whether we're doing it or not. So I, I just think it's like a facade that mm-hmm. I, I don't mind people realizing is not the reality with them. Fair enough. Well, tomorrow on <laughs> Rising, we'll cover any updates that come out in the mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, Southern California. And we'll also be looking for new SCOTUS news, so stay tuned. Yeah, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we will see you guys tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.